This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The only thing that's the drag about uh, the holidays is when it's all over. We're going to get slapped with cap and trade. Uh, Again, as I've said to you before, I'm all for saving the environment. I think most Canadians want to do their part. uh, But I think there's political parties that have made this uh, an issue to generate revenue and pull the wool over your eyes and make it sound like they're doing something great for the environment when the Auditor General says... Uh, that uh, we've overspent for this stuff by about $37 billion. So, uh, again, it's not about what's good for the environment. It's about, is this balance? Has due diligence been done? Has there been cost analysis done? I mean, I've had this discussion. We had the Premier on earlier on this week uh, where I asked her plain, very plainly, how, how are we to have confidence in cap and trade when there were mistakes, self-admitted mistakes made with her energy plan. How do we know those same mistakes aren't going to be made with cap and trade? And a year from now, she comes back and says, well, we goofed this too. We made a mistake here too. Uh, and in the end, you know, what's, you know, started as, oh, it's a cup of coffee, and, you know, $6.40, the average increase for the average bill. And we know what happened with electricity and where it went is, is we, you know, 70% in the last few years, electricity has gone up. So what does it mean with cap and trade? For me, it's still difficult to understand. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ross McKittrick is with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics, Finance with the University of Guelph. And he is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Scott. Uh, do you think? Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this, especially at this time of the year. Um, no do you think? Uh, do you think Ontarians, Canadians, really have any grasp of how hard this is going to hit, or is it going to hit that hard? Um, well, first of all, on, on your first point, no, because we have absolutely no information from the government. Um, people have pointed out including the Auditor General, that they rushed into the Green Energy Act without doing a cost-benefit analysis, and it's exactly the same here. They, they did not do us the courtesy of a serious cost-benefit analysis showing how this is going to impact Ontario sectors. And at one point, uh, I was doing a talk in Toronto and made some mildly critical comments about uh, the Ontario's energy policy, and a guy approached me afterwards. He's, he's an economist working in the Ministry of Finance on the cap-and-trade system, and he said, you just wouldn't believe how improvised this all is. We have no idea what, what's going to happen, and we don't have the data that we need, and it's all on such a rush timetable. So um, we're flying blind here. And now my own suspicion, though, is it's not actually going to uh, hit all that hard, at least at first, because the way the system works is they issue a certain number of permits, and if you are a, a fossil fuel-using entity in the province, um manufacturing firms, power plants, things like that. You have to have permits, um, you have to buy permits. And the initial round of auctions uh, showed that the supply of permits was large enough that people weren't really lining up to, to bid on them very much. There wasn't um, any concern about uh, there being enough permits in the market. Um, so probably the price will come out fairly low. It'll end up being a, a small extra charge on fuel use. It'll hit electricity bills because natural gas is an important part of our electricity mix. And um, So it's double well, dipping in that respect. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Well, yeah, it is, it's like they've already phased out coal and brought in all these renewables, so that was supposed to address the environmental part of it. Now this is just layering another 
redundant um, system on top of that, ostensibly to deal with the problem that they supposedly already dealt with. So um, the problem, though, is the cap idea, like it's cap and trade. And the cap means that the supply of permits never changes. Where we're going to run into a problem is if we try to get any real economic growth happening. And the use of fossil fuel is capped under the system. And so that's where um, if growth starts to happen, then the price of permits goes up. And it becomes this kind of automatic tourniquet that tightens whenever you have economic growth and, and really just chokes off the extra fuel consumption. And it's um, in your introduction, you made this point that everybody wants to be making sure we're responsible in how we use the environment, but we have other ways of doing that that don't impair economic growth and that have achieved great results for the environment in Ontario. The air quality has improved. We've, we've, we're much more energy efficient. We've done all kinds of things already. This mechanism is kind of a, a brute force and I think completely unnecessary addition to all of that. But it, it, where it will show up is, is down the road when um, people try to open up new manufacturing operations, if that ever happens again, uh, and increased demand for fuels, the price goes up, and then that uh, cascades throughout the economy and everybody else feels the pain. So um, I, my estimation is you won't really notice a big effect at the beginning. Where it becomes a problem is down the road. It, it really chokes off future economic growth. Where is the money going? Where does the extra money we pay every month go? Um, the, um, um, the, the plan is that the government will take that money and throw it into, um, a fund for subsidizing green technology and, uh, things like that. Um, they have such a terrible track record for their use of, of money on conservation programs and subsidies to um, industries and so on. Um, I think it's safe to say that the money will be badly spent and we won't see any benefit from that side. Ideally, what they should do is is auction the permits off and then use the money to um, apply it against their deficit or um, use it to fund some reduction in other taxes. Um, that's what BC does with their carbon tax. They, they fund income tax reductions. Um, but Ontario chose instead to, um, uh, to to keep the money in, in the hands of the government for allocating to their pet spending. Um, so wh- why did BC go the carbon tax route? Why are we split on this? Shouldn't we be unified on how we do this? Uh, well, that would be ideal. Um, the BC went the carbon tax route because they, um, they spent a longer time looking at, at what they wanted to do. And um, if you ask people who really studied these systems carefully, um, they, uh, they came back with the answer that a carbon tax has the advantage that you, your cost is known. Everybody knows what the number is. It, it's not going to be volatile. You're not going to run into these problems of price spikes. And you can estimate how much your revenue is going to be, so you can build that into your budgeting system. And the best thing to do with the money is, instead of using it to finance extra spending, give it back to households in the form of lower income taxes. And so if you're going to go the route of carbon pricing, the carbon tax is the best way to do it, minimize the economic impact and and bring uh, bring it in in a very stable, predictable way. 
uh, cap and trade doesn't have any of those advantages. And Ontario chose cap and trade because um, they liked the idea that they could fix the quantity. And um, it's a, uh, like I say, it's a very, it's a brute force way of, of hitting a quantity target. And then you just um, impose on the economy a lot more price volatility. And you also don't give people the benefit of the lower tax rates. Why is this so attractive to politicians? I don't know the answer to that. I know that um, having worked on this for many decades in the economic literature, um, between cap-and-trade and carbon taxes, economists much prefer carbon taxes for the reasons that I outlined. But in the activist and lobbyist community, they like cap-and-trade. Um, lobbyists, including energy firms in the United States, lobbied intensively for cap-and-trade because if if they can rig the system so that um, they get the permits free of charge, then in effect it becomes like a big milk marketing board for energy. It, you, um, the firms are actually made better off because they're all in a cartel together. They get these permits that are worth billions of dollars and they can exclude new competitors because they hold all the permits. And um, so they were lobbying for that in the U.S. It didn't end up uh, passing. But um, some of the um, people on the environmentalist side like cap-and-trade because um, they like the idea they can fix the quantity and then over time ratchet down the quantity um, by reducing the number of permits, and they don't care what the price is going to be. Like, somebody else is going to pay the price, so uh, they're not concerned about that. And I think what it comes down to is who did the province listen to when they were thinking about this, and the answer is they listen to the people who like cap-and-trade, and they they didn't listen to people who are aware of the downside. Uh, obviously, Quebec and California are part of this. What's the advantage or advantage of that? Uh, well, it creates a, a problem, first of all, with the exchange rate. I know this is an, a concern on, on the U.S. side that um, firms... Uh, are supposed to be paying the same price in the different jurisdictions, and they have to deal with um, the exchange rate volatility. Um, for Ontario, one of the problems is going to be that um, Quebec has so much hydropower and relatively little um, fossil energy left that yeah. they're going to be the ones selling extra permits, and we're going to um, be buying, we're going to be needing the permits. So at a certain point, you're going to see a headline to the effect that Ontario just sent a hundred million dollars to Quebec to buy these permits. And when you ask, what did we get for it? All we got were these pieces of paper that no one's really sure what they mean, but they're these carbon uh, trading permits. And we're spending a lot of money. We're either sending it to Quebec or, or California. California is probably going to be a net buyer for a while yet. Why don't we but, have the hydro facilities that, that Quebec would have? I mean, the, the provinces are, are similar, are they not? Why would they have more? Well, because they have the James Bay power system that they developed in the 1980s, um, way at the northern end of the province, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's massive capacity. And they built it um, so that they would have this export, um, exportable electricity. They're thinking they'd export it mainly to New York State, which they do. They they send a lot of power south of the border, but um, we we import uh, from them as well. Um, but that, that'll be another problem. That at a certain point, people are going to wonder why are we paying higher prices and then giving the money to Quebec? Yeah, um, that hardly makes any sense to us. <sighs> um, how does uh, when I was talking to the premier uh, earlier on in the week, I asked her how we could have 
uh, faith in a cap and tra- her cap and trade system when there were mistakes made uh, with the energy plan. Uh, she said that they had learned a lot since then, and other people have test-driven cap and trade. Do you buy that? Other people have tried it and have learned what a terrible system it is. Like, I don't think, when she says they've learned, uh, I'd like to know what she is going to claim that they've learned. I mean, Europe has had a cap-and-trade system in, but they suffer um, a lot of price volatility. Now, um, when they first introduced their cap-and-trade system, they, they had too many permits, and the price collapse went to zero, and then the, the people in charge of it panicked, and they cut the amount of permits, a small amount, and the price spiked way higher than they thought it should, and then... Um, the governments, again, increased the number of permits, and now the price has fallen. So the price is very cheap in Europe um, because it's very hard in this system to control the price volatility. Uh, for Ontario, uh, the really big problem is they have already done everything that they set out to do as far as emission reduction and, and carbon dioxide reduction through these heavy-handed manipulations of the electricity system. They, phasing out the coal plants, bringing in renewables, imposing all kinds of rules, and we've paid for it. We've already paid for all of this. They're not going to accomplish anything further. The, the cap-and-trade system is really redundant at this point. It's um, uh, she's, she's never going to be able to point to any environmental change two or three years down the road and say that's what we got for all the money that we spent on cap-and-trade. There isn't going to be any benefit. Uh, she talked about how uh, we're now leading edge in this industry, and uh, we're selling this this industry, this this technology. Is this generating any jobs? She could maybe point to a few little operations here and there that that bolt solar panels on people's roofs, but we import wind turbine parts. Uh, they're made elsewhere, and. Um, even so, even if there's a few jobs, they're here as long as the subsidy systems are here, and that's yeah. and they'll disappear when the subsidies disappear. But what we've lost, uh, we've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, and um, uh, all across the province, um, people are dealing with high electricity prices, uh, and firms are dealing with that by canceling investment plans. So um, it's way more than offset. Um, any any minor job gains through green energy are way more than offset by the the slowdown in our manufacturing sector and the loss of investment opportunities here. Dr. Ross McKittrick has been with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. Ross, uh, thanks for the time and uh, insight is always much appreciated. Have a great holiday. Okay, thanks, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I noticed this the other day driving in, uh, you know, following a transport truck uh, along the 403. All of a sudden, you can see ice and snow and such start to uh, break apart and come off the roof of the truck. And really, you just got to hang on to the wheel and, uh, you know... Uh, let it bounce off the roof of your car or the hood or your windshield or whatever and uh, and hope for the best. Uh, the thing is with weather like we're having now where you get a lot of snow and then all of a sudden it thaws and then you get a, la- a layer of rain or, or what have you, it creates all sorts of chunks of ice and, and, and not just 
nice fluffy white stuff flying off uh, the tops of vehicles. So what happens if you get hit with one of these things and uh, it demos your car? Is it considered a collision? Is the driver of the vehicle at fault? Does it matter if it's a car or a truck? To talk more about all of this, Constable Klaus Wagner is with us, traffic specialist with the Hamilton Police Services and with us now. Hello, Klaus. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Thanks, like always. Well, uh, obviously a busy time for you, a busy time of year for you guys and girls out there doing your ride spot checks right now. How big an issue is ice flying off of vehicles? It is every time we have the big snowfalls and and the very next day, you know, either people not clearing it off their windows for car drivers and then the issues. uh, Most of the trucking companies now are pretty good about it. They have, you know, those... uh, Y exits and a lot of the trucking yards that are wiping off, but they're not going to, like you said, they're not going to get all of it, so you have to be careful. What do the truck uh, trucking companies have to get rid of this? How does this work? So they have, a lot of them have, I call it a U, U exit, so there's, it's just a steel structure that when the trucks drive under, they either, some of them have brushes and it kind of wipes off everything oh, off right. the top of the, the trailer. Uh, obviously, though, not everyone's going to have one of those. No, not not in all the places. Or the trailer might be smaller, and it doesn't it doesn't isn't as effective. So, what is the responsibility? And we'll start with the truck driver. I mean, is there something that that, that he has and or or has not or ha, he has or has not to do w- before he leaves the yard? Well, like I said, they should try to get under there. A lot of them sometimes they'll take it through the if they have a big washing facility, or they'll get to one close enough where they can get it all sprayed off if they can. Uh, that way, and unfortunately, if some of it does come off and uh, and hits your vehicle, it's not considered a collision because it's not a part of the load. Meaning, mm. it's not like a, a something that was on the truck, as in you know a piece of material that came off. It's just weather conditions that way. Now, if you were to get in a collision because of that, because you know sometimes it could there's some big chunks and yeah. maybe your whole windshield. So that truck is indirectly involved in the collision that that you were involved in. Uh, but at the end of the day, as long as the uh, driver has done reasonable things to, to try to get it off, uh, it's not the responsibility of the driver in any way. Pretty much, yes. What about if you're in a car where obviously, you know, you're, say you're following a car, somebody, as you mentioned, hasn't cleaned off properly and it flies off and, and damages? And again, it's the same thing there where um, if it's just your, your car gets damaged by it, there's no collision, like you don't go off the road and hit something. Uh, then it's just basically uh, under your insurance policy it would be something you know under your comprehensive policy it would be like be no different if you were driving along the road and you hit uh, uh, a hole in the road and your tire mm-hmm. got uh, your rim got bent or something like that it's not a collision it's it's uh, goes under your comprehensive part if you're going to claim it through insurance. Do police get a lot of uh, calls regarding this over the course of a winter? Uh, not a lot, but like I said, we, we get people calling in and saying you know, they need to make a report as in a collision, and that's when I explain what I just said to you. Right. Uh, how dangerous is this? What does a driver do if you're just driving down a 403 or a link or a red hill or something, and, uh, you know, you're trapped between lanes of yeah. traffic and off it comes? Yeah, and, that, and that's the problem. I mean, if you, you know, time and distance, any time around trucks, um, I try to say to a, a lot of drivers, um, if you can't, if you're driving behind a truck and you can't see their mirrors, you're too close to the truck, meaning like that truck driver doesn't see you behind. So by backing off enough, if something was to come off that way, hopefully it wouldn't hit you because you'd be far enough back. Or you know, move to the side, don't drive right behind the truck if if you think there's going to be an issue that way. And I guess uh, more importantly, if you see something like this coming at you, it's just much like an animal on the road. Your best thing is not to react. Is is that accurate? 
pretty close. I mean, unless, I mean, yeah, because, you know, the problem is if you slam on the brakes, that's why I say that's where the collision happens. Now the car behind you hits yeah. you and stuff. But, I mean, it can do a lot of damage. I mean, there's sometimes the whole windshield can be taken out that way. So that's where, you know, hopefully uh, nothing ba- that serious happens. It's, but it's like you usually said, it's a dent to the hood or maybe to the roof or something. Uh, so what is the law regarding you cleaning off your own own car regarding uh, snowstorms and such? Okay, so um, as I always say, uh, the Highway Traffic Act says that you have to have a clear view to the front and the rear. So um, as I always call it, no uh, no submarine tr- tr- no submarine drivers. I mean, you're just clear <laughs> enough that you look like you have a periscope uh, vision and you're trying to drive that way. You know, spend the time, clean it off. You know, uh, make sure you got the whole view to the rear. Meaning, if you have the defroster, your side mirrors is are clear, so you can see. So you need just both side windows on your driver's side and the passenger side, and, and you're good to go. What about plates and lights? Um, the lights, I would say, is if it's going to affect your your driving uh, that way. If you can get them off right in the morning, the, the rear lights, and yeah, you should clear off your back license plate. It does make it easier. You, you probably wouldn't get a ticket. Most officers would probably, but they might stop you, especially especially if you're going to be on the 407 or something. Uh, so uh, at the end of the day, is there certain types of weather? I mean, we get we've been getting a lot of uh, rain and snow and, and and ice and such. Is it worse this w- with conditions like this as opposed to just you know typical winter weather? Yeah, it is. Like you said, because of the changing uh, weather temperatures, you know yourself. Like you 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 go in uh, like today we're having rain, but you know all of a sudden, if depending what type of shift you work. You know, you might be coming in during the day, and you come out in, at night there, and your your windows are now frozen up, and you, like you said, your lights have a little bit of the frost, like the little bit of the ice over it, and your door handles and stuff. So, you need to be aware that um, you know a lot of people put up their uh, windshield wipers so they don't they get that, and make sure you have a scraper. All right. So we heard. Uh, I heard as I'm driving in this morning that there were some impaired charges this morning, which kind of seems odd. Uh, does that mean early in the morning or uh, morning, morning, as in seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock? Um, it was uh, like late evening, early morning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, they were all they were all collisions involved where the, the single motor vehicles went into things, uh, other than one that, that hit a taxi driver. Um, again, it's the time of season. Uh, you you have to make the decision before you even leave the house. If you think you're just going to have one or two, you've already made the wrong decision to think that you're going to be okay to drive because one or two, as we all know, ends up being a few more, and then you, you get yourself in a jackpot. So either stay overnight, grab a cab, take take a, the HSR, or you know, or call a friend. And again, as you mentioned, you know, people say, well, you know, I've just had a minor amount. It's not a big deal. But there are uh, different levels of being impaired that, you know, you may not get your charge, but you'll certainly lose your vehicle. Explain that again. So um, the, there's a criminal charge, which is the over the, the, the legal limit of 80 milligrams. But then here in the province of Ontario, when you get a driver's license, you're saying that you're not going to have the amount of alcohol above 50 milligrams, where you can lose your license for three days the first time, seven days the second time 30 days the third time and that's where that's that's the one i'm telling people about is you think you're just going to have a couple you're putting yourself in jeopardy that you don't just have a couple you have a couple more and then you're going to get in that warn range and you lose your license for three days there's a reinstatement fee of 180 dollars your tar your car could have been towed so that's 260 dollars to get it out it adds up it adds up and that's why i always say my my hashtag on my twitter is always the cost of courage. It just takes a little bit of courage to say, I'm not going to drive tonight. 
Hmm. So, uh, and this happens right on the roadside. So there's you'll lose your license right there for that temporary exactly. period. Exactly. All right, so uh, there you have it. Anything else you want to get out there before we uh, leave you, Klaus? Well, I just want to wish all your listeners uh, the happiest of Christmas and the best of next year, and let's try to keep it all safe for all our families. Well said, Constable Klaus Wagner with us, traffic specialist with the Hamilton Police Service. Of course, watching out for flying ice, making sure you've got your car cleaned off, and of course, not drinking and driving uh, at all. Uh, Klaus, thank you very much for the time. Stay safe. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uber. You know, why can't Uber just get along with everybody? You know, I, I don't get it. It's not like they're the only people that are testing self-driving cars. Like, you know, Ford's testing them. Google's testing them. Tesla's testing them. But, you know, whenever Uber's testing them, they always get into trouble because they don't have the right permits. Or they don't, like, what kind of, what kind of fly-by-night operation is Uber? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Uber pulls self-driving cars off San Francisco uh, roads because the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles down in the States, uh, pulls its permits. Where are we with self-driving cars? Uh, why is Uber always making itself so di- uh, life so difficult for itself? Or is it just so they get headlines in the paper like uh, I'm reading to you now? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Sunil Johal is with us, Policy Director at the Moet Centre, School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto, and has authored a report on automation and is with us now. Hello, Sunil. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Give us an update. Where are we with self-driving cars? Where is it going on? What sort of tests are taking place? Uh, so here in Ontario, we've just heard that the province is also three different pilots uh, in the province. I think they're basically most of them are based in the Waterloo uh, region. So those are expected to run over the next several years and give uh, the province and give some of the companies involved uh, a better sense of what's happening. But in the states, we're kind of much further ahead. I mean, in Pittsburgh, Uber's been uh, testing self-driving cars on Pittsburgh's roads for several months now, essentially since the, the early fall. Uh, and as you mentioned in the intro, uh, in California, there's a number of different companies, I think 16 at the last count, uh, who have been testing self-driving cars um, in California in various, uh, in various places. So uh, it's very much in the early kind of testing phase at this point, but some companies like Google have put millions of miles of tests uh, kind of into the books already, so it's 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 still being tested, but it's uh, it, it's got a lot of uh, miles under its belt, so to so to speak. So, what do the and let's start with Ontario. What do the permits permit you to do, or these people that are experimenting with these cars? Three say in Ontario, so that basically allows them to take these test vehicles out onto a, a street. Yeah, so I mean, you can drive essentially, I think in Ontario you can drive on public streets, but you need to have, uh, I mean, this is the same in California, same thing in Pittsburgh, you need to have a human driver capable uh, essentially of taking control of the car at any point. So I would say we're calling them autonomous vehicles, but you could put that in quotation marks, really. I mean, they are driving themselves, but the... uh, regulators to this point are are not comfortable, I don't think, with fully autonomous vehicles. We've got a car that doesn't even have a steering wheel driving around and yeah. kind of doing 
whatever, there's got to be a, a, a licensed driver sitting in the front seat ready to basically kind of at the push of a button take over the car. I mean, and the interesting thing is uh, Uber was, had, had been testing these uh, cars in San Francisco over the past week, um, and there were a number of people saying that they saw these cars going through red lights, they saw uh, them kind of cutting dangerously through bike lanes, um, and Isn't there supposed to be a driver with these well, exactly. as well? Exactly. So, so you're what, kind of what, wondering, like, what, what was happening with the driver there? And I think in some cases Uber was uh, putting a bit of blame on the driver, saying they are investigating why the driver didn't kind of stop the car when it was mm. when it was starting to go through a red light. So that's I think I mean that's the, really the tricky part here. For if you're you can imagine if you're the test driver as well, like you're in a bit of a tricky spot here where. You can imagine you get comfortable over time where, like, the car's making good decision, good decision, good decision. Yeah. Then all of a sudden uh, you let your guard down for one instant and the car does something that you weren't expecting it uh, to do. And that's really one of the challenges with this technology. If it's fully automated, that's one thing, and you can kind of not worry about it. But where you are expecting people to be able to take over at a certain point, that kind of puts you in a dangerous spot where you're expecting humans to... Both be alert, but also be comfortable with what's going on. I think that's a tricky. So, at balance. the end of the day, you can can you see these being either fully automated or not at all, rather than half and half? Uh, I mean, I think the game plan for most of the companies that are involved in this space is to go to a fully automated uh, vehicle where you you're not even really thinking about people having steering wheels or anything like that. Like the car, you just kind of tell yeah. the car where you want to go, and it takes you. Uh, there, but we're obviously not there yet because uh, real-world environments are very complicated. Like you've got pedestrians walking around doing unpredictable things. You've got bikes weaving in and out. Like we're not talking about something that you can right. design in a lab, and that's why all of these companies are really trying to get that real-world testing um, underway so that they can get as much data as possible and refine the software they have so that when unpredictable things happen, the car does something that's safe and whether that's kind of put the brakes on or pull over to the side if it doesn't know what to do. Um, that's, that's, I think, the hope. How successful have these tests been to date? How well are we doing on this? Uh, I, mean, I mean, Google's test, I mean, several million miles and they have had essentially, I think there's been kind of like one or two very, very minor incidents and those have generally been the fault of other people like it hasn't been the an issue with with the google car uh we haven't heard i haven't heard of any issues with the pittsburgh uber uh, self-driving car tests as of yet and in california aside from some of these kind of recent things with uber running the red light uh, we haven't really seen any major accidents either i mean the one big uh, kind of headline grabbing incident that happened i think it was back in the summer was tesla uh, there was a gentleman who was had his Tesla in self-driving mode, and it crashed into a, the side of a semi-trailer, uh, and he passed away. Uh, and I think they're still kind of investigating whether that was his fault or whether that yeah. was the the car's fault. I mean, I mean, but we have to remember. Uh, I mean, I think the number is about two thousand people in Canada die from car accidents or die in car accidents every year. So. Even if there are some incidents with self-driving cars, that's that that doesn't yeah. mean they're not they're still not safer than uh, the alternative. I mean, the the challenge is for the companies that any accident or any death that happens with any of these cars being tested is going to get headlines around the world. But I mean, people are killed, 
sadly and unfortunately, every single day uh, in Ontario or in Canada as a result of car crashes, and that just doesn't get news anymore because it's so common. Why is uh, Uber at issue with San Francisco and permits? Why, why does Uber never seem to have its paperwork in order? I mean, yeah, the, the other companies are doing it. What's the issue here? I don't know, really. I mean, that's the very strange thing about that situation in, in California where you've got a number of other companies who applied and got the got the permit to test the self-driving car relatively quickly. I mean, I think California is saying within three days we can give you this permit. Uh, all other things being in order, and Uber just basically said, well, we don't really think we need this uh, permit. And then when uh, the registration for those cars was pulled just recently, I guess it was a, a day or two ago, uh, so Uber had to pull the cars off the road, Uber said uh, basically, well, we think the the, the laws are, are not uh, correct and we're going to have to go change the laws. But it's a bit of an odd situation because you have all these other companies that are not having any problems with the laws. They're able to test uh, the technology. So I think Uber's found that their approach of ignore the laws and hope everybody catches up to you has worked in a lot of cases. But uh, I think it's one thing for you to do that when you're talking about kind of Uber cars that are just, you just have somebody driving a cab around essentially. But it's a very different thing when you're talking about a self-driving vehicle. Like I think the safety issues are much yeah. more significant. So why would they do this, do you think, Sunil? Do you think this is PR? It's sort of the rebel attitude of Uber. It goes with part of the brand. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's not like it's a big issue just to get the proper permits yeah, away everybody I'd, else To be has. honest with you, I don't know. I is mean, it this I, outlaw love, mentality, do you think? I'd love to ask them that question, like if they think this is good for their brand. Yeah. I, 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 to be perfectly honest, I don't think most people would think – uh, that's a good thing. Like you, at a certain point, you want companies to play by the rules, especially if. I mean, it'd be one thing if California or Ontario said, "We, sorry, you can't test self-driving cars here. It's going to take us five years to set up uh, the rules for a pilot." Uh, but they've got those rules in place already. So, I mean, there's really no excuse to uh, kind of forge ahead and say, "Well, we've got to do this because the regulators are struggling to catch up." I mean, in this case, the regulators are ahead of the game. They've got the rules in place for how you want to test these things. Uh, and many other companies are able to comply by those rules, but for some reason, Uber uh, isn't. So, I, I, yeah, I can't read their minds. I don't know why that is, but it's very puzzling. Uh, what's in this, meaning self-driving cars, what's in this for Uber? The model with Uber is everyone's got a car, you want to make some cash, doing something on the side, you can drive people around. So where does the driverless car come into this? You've got a driverless car. You want to sit in the passenger seat while someone else drives, well, well, the vehicle drives someone else around. I mean, is eventually just going to be the driverless car and the passenger? And in that case, who owns the car? What What's the new model for Uber under this? I mean, for Uber, I mean, the situation is so right now, I mean, if you take a, a car, if you take an Uber ride, Roughly 80%, 75% of that, depending on where you are, of that fare is going to the driver, and then 20 or 25% is going to Uber. If mm-hmm. Uber doesn't have to pay the driver that 75, 80% commission, that means Uber's taking 100% of the. But who pays for the car? Fair. Uber would be owning these cars. I mean, I think their game plan is, and they've said this to some of the car companies, if you can get. Uh, the technology on the road will buy all of the cars you can produce in the next three or four uh, years. So, I mean, I think the model for Uber is they're going to own uh, a fleets of these self-driving cars in different cities. 
uh, and have them drive around and collect fares nonstop 24-7, I mean, aside from having to go get gas and kind of be maintained. So, I mean, if you think about it from their point of view or from a lot of these other companies, that's hugely efficient is you pay for the car once, mm-hmm. you've got to maintain it over the course of 10 years or whatever, but you're not paying anybody to drive, um, and you're, t- you're pocketing 100% of the revenue from uh, fares. So, I mean, that's far more lucrative than what they're doing uh, now. I mean, the other challenge for Uber is a lot of the drivers in various cities around the world are claiming that they're actually employees of Uber, and Uber owes them uh, certain kinds of health benefits and things like that, or certain other obligations, which makes right. them much more expensive to Uber as well, rather than being independent uh, contractors. So we think much more them, expensive than a self-driving car. Uh, I mean, I don't. It, it really depends. I mean, right now it's hard to do the math on this. But yeah. I mean, the the cars are all in a relatively new state, so of course they're going to be expensive off the bat. But mm-hmm. you can imagine, like as with any technology, like even like a big flat screen TV, like they cost five thousand yeah. dollars right now, but within two years it's half the price. Uh, and if you've got a lot of big companies stepping in and saying we'll buy these, uh, we'll buy these vehicles, the prices will go down very quickly once the manufacturing kinks are sorted out and once the software's uh, kind of off the shelf. So. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, they're really smart and they've done the math. So, I mean, I don't think yeah. these companies would be investing this much in it if they didn't think that it was a, a money winner. So is Uber's plan to have really nobody owning a car? They'll own all of them and you just Uber as you need it. Yeah, basically, I mean, that's what their CEO, Travis Kalanick, he said this probably two years ago. He said, ultimately, our goal is to have no uh, drivers in our uh, car. So I definitely think that that's what they view as the model, whether it's kind of ownership or some other kind of lease agreement or I don't know what. But um, for 100%, their goal is uh, having driverless cars ferrying people around. And I mean, uh, when you think about it, that could also be used then for deliveries. It doesn't have to just be taking people and yeah. dropping them off like a taxi could. I mean, it's kind of like a combination of a taxi, a delivery car, uh, and all of those things wrapped into one. So... Uh, how long before we can go into a dealership and buy a driverless car? I mean, the predictions on that are all over the map. I mean, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, he predicts that by the end of 2017, he's going to have driverless uh, Teslas out there that will be uh, plying the roads in uh, in real-world situations. Other companies like Ford seem to be saying more like 2021 kind of time frame. So I mean, if you kind of split the difference, I would say in the next three to five years, you could expect uh, these cars will be available uh, for purchase. And, and will the laws be in place to allow them? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that cities are going to have to work and provinces are going to have to work very hard on uh, getting in place. But I think when you look at the benefits of what these vehicles can do in terms of reducing accidents, uh, reducing congestion because they'll be able to drive much closer together uh, than regular cars do. Uh, it would, I think there's a huge momentum behind the technology that it would be hard for regulators to ignore. So I think this is a case where you would expect to see uh, the rules will be in place when the technology is widely available. How expensive will these cars be when they are out? Will it be the equivalent of buying, say, an electric vehicle now or more than that? I haven't actually seen much in the way of kind of what the commercial cost of these would be yet, and I think that's because there's still a, a ways um, 
away. So I, I'd be speculating if I if I if I made a guess there. But I mean, I think as you say, like electric vehicles kind of started off at fifty. $60,000 price point, I think a lot of them have come down to the $30,000, $40,000 range. So I think you'd probably expect something somewhat similar. I mean, the difference is there's a lot more technology in these cars than there is in, for example, an electric uh, vehicle. But really, once the companies have got the technology sorted out, uh, in terms of software, that's just done once, and then you can replicate it easily millions of times. It's really just the, the kind of the radar and the LiDAR technology that they're using that that stuff is kind of has to be in each car, and it's pretty expensive right now. But um, economies of scale mean that once they start producing 100,000, 500,000 of these cars, right. uh, those costs will come down. So when this happens, and say it's in three years from now where they are legal on the road, will they be fully automated at that point, or will it still be passenger or driver sitting there behind the wheel in case something goes wrong? That's the open question. I mean, I think the companies, when they're talking about these next year or 2021 timeframes, they're thinking completely autonomous yeah. uh, vehicles. Um, but I think that's going to be the really tricky question. Is A, is the technology in such a good place that we completely trust these vehicles and there's no, not even a steering wheel maybe? Uh, and B, uh, if you're a regulator in Ontario or in California, uh, how do you make rules around that? And then it kind of opens up all other kinds of questions. Like if there's an accident, who's liable for it? Like if I, I was sitting in the car, but I had no mm-hmm. uh, responsibility for making a decision, is it the person who designed the software? Um, so uh, that'll open up a, a whole and I guess it will, Pandora's box of it, it will It will depend on how effective they are in the sense that how many accidents there are. Maybe that won't be an issue. Well, exactly. And I mean, I think that's what I think a lot of these jurisdictions like California and Ontario are hoping to get from allowing pilots is let's get real world experience. And if we can see after 10 million miles driven, there's been zero or virtually no accidents. uh, And people haven't, the test drivers haven't had, haven't had to take over the car, then we could probably say with good, uh, fairly high level of certainty that we're comfortable uh, making these legal on our uh, roads. But if the drivers are having to take over all the time, then maybe there's a different question there. Sunil Johal has been with us, Policy Director at the Moet Centre School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto. Fascinating topic, Sunil. Thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.